Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Vayelech, He Went. The address is Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 1 through verse 30. That's right, it's only one chapter long. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I am the author, Torah teacher, Ariel ben Lyman. The written commentary was updated on July 4th of 2006. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher bachar banu mikol ha'amim, venatan lanu et torato. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha'torah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. The portion known as Vayelech gets its name from the opening Pasik, which in Hebrew reads, Vayelech Moshe Vayidaber et Hadvarim Haele et Kol Yisrael. In English it reads, Moshe went and spoke the following words to all Yisrael. The story itself picks up as a continuation of the previous portion. Uh, to be sure, in regular years, Vayelech is actually read with the previous parsha called Nitzavim. Moshe the designated leader of Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, he's actually nearing his final days on this earth. At 120 years old, he's actually ready to pass the responsibility of leading the people onto Yehoshua, Joshua, his faithful servant. And so he reminds the people that because of Hashem's punishment, he himself will not accompany them, but that Yehoshua will lead them into the promised land. Remember, Moshe was told to speak to the rock, and instead he struck it twice. His in Encouragement to be strong and reliant on the protection of the Almighty despite the seeming opposition ahead. You know, the giants in the land? It's typical of this most famous leader of Israel. I want to talk a little bit about this passing of the torch from um, between these two leaders. So my next um, paragraph in my commentary is entitled From Moshe to Yehoshua. Of the 120 years that Moshe lived, a better part of his last third of his life, uh, the last 40 years, was spent in encouraging this young nation to press on to the greatness that Hashem had called them into. Um, I personally think that at this point in his life, and of course in the lives of the people, that this compassionate servant of the Lord knew that, you know what, they needed to hear this type of message. They, they, were, they were tender, and they 
they needed this uh, type of encouragement and um, this, this type of, how shall we say, kind of a fatherly talk, um, but done in such a way as to, um, to kind of cheer them on, to, to affirm to them that they can make it, they can do it, if they just stay the course. And you know, Moshe was the only one suitable for delivering it to them. Otherwise, we might imagine that Moshe may have simply converted, conveyed these words to Yahushua and said, after I'm dead, go ahead and read all these words to the people. But Moshe didn't do that. He gave them the delivery himself. The fact that in verses 7 and 8, he publicly admonishes Yehoshua to leadership, publicly, he does this in front of the people, it was also a very wise administrative action. You know, it's a good move on his part. Not to mention, I believe it was necessary. The people needed to see that Moshe was conferring and transferring his trust and his leadership. The mantle was being passed on to Yehoshua. When the people witnessed this passing of the mantle of responsibility between these two great leaders, you know, we've got one who's already proven in faithful service while the other possessing great potential. I mean, the people could see this. What it is, it is uh, I believe that it only reaffirmed to Israel the confidence that Moshe had in Yehoshua. You know, that's what the people needed to see. They needed to understand that Moshe trusted Joshua and that Moshe was confident that after he passed on, that Joshua would indeed lead the people properly. It served as a visible statement to let people know that since you trusted me, this is like Moshe speaking, right? Since you trusted me, and since I can trust Yehoshua, then you can trust him also. Hashem himself then summons the two of these great leaders into the Ohel Moed, the Tent of Meeting, for the official uh, transfer leadership, as it were. Now, I'm ex-military. I used to be in the Army from 96 to 2000. I spent some time in Korea. That's where, my, where I met Suki. And um, being in the military, I had the opportunity to witness firsthand this type of change of command procedure that I believe is taking place here in our passage. What we would have is we would have an elaborate ceremony between the troops. We'd have the outgoing commander um, giving the troops his final challenge or his final charge. He would bring the troops to attention, bring them into formation, um, give us some orders, maybe some some um, uh, I can't remember some facing moves where we you know right left left face right face stop about face things like that, and um, and then he would he the outgoing commander would encourage us the troops, to show his successor, the incoming commander, the same loyalty and trust that we have shown to him. And it's a very moving time to see these two commanders come together, one the outgoing, one the incoming. In a way, I believe that Hashem picks up on this theme of challenge, and he runs with it. In fact, as we read further into the passage, we see that he runs quite far with it. So uh, let's read one verse, and then we can uh, comment on it. Chapter 31, verse 19, the latter half of that verse reads, quote, This song can be a witness for me against the people of Israel. End quote. Notice the theme of witness. right? Having warned the people about their coming days of lawlessness, remember we talked about um, how Moshe looked into the future of the people and he gave them a choice. He gave them on the right hand life and on the left hand death. He said, choose this day, life or death. Choose life. I present before you two choices. You choose. Moshe, speaking through the Spirit of God, was able to see into the future of the people and see that they were going to make some very unwise choices. 
He warned the people about the coming days of lawlessness in this passage as well, in chapter uh, 31, verses 16 and 18, 16 through 18. Hashem then commands Moshe to do something special for the people. He asks Moshe to teach the people a song of remembrance, which we find in this passage in uh, verses 19 through 22. And keeping up with this theme of witness, this song itself is going to serve as a witness for their God against the people of Israel. Now the actual song is recorded for us in chapter 32, which we'll have to wait till um, next week's parasha to examine it. But why does Hashem keep reminding them, you might ask yourself, of their upcoming failure to obey Him? You ever notice that? Why does God tell them that they're going to obey, uh, disobey Him and that they're going to fail Him? I mean, from a cursory glance, if you just read it at face value, it appears rather, what I would say, is pessimistic and disheartening. I mean, why couldn't we have more optimism sometimes? Now again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uncomfortable with the passage. I'm just, I'm just, we're dialoguing with the text. Okay, we're midrashing. We're, we're asking the text questions so that we can understand further what God is trying to teach the people. That's all we're doing. All right. In fact, it might strike the average reader as being too harsh and too challenging sometimes as we read these passages. But I believe we need to understand the heart of the Father here. His loving, his well, his loving chastening. It actually does appear at first to be too much for us to bear. At first, we cry out, God, it's more than I can handle. But as we begin to see what I call the big picture in the thing, we begin to understand it more. And so that's what we have to do. We have to, un- we have to be able to read through and see the larger lesson that's being taught to the people and as to why God says the things that he says. In order to understand why God uses Moshe to point out the downfalls of the people, then we must read what it says in verses 24 to 29 carefully. Now, I'm not going to quote it here for you. I want you to read it for yourself. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 24 through 29. Allow me to use material from a previous commentary that I've written to explain um, my midrash to you on these passages, okay? Prior to coming to faith, all of us, now this speaks to all of us, it speaks to any believer in any given age, alright? Prior to coming to faith, the Torah served as a reminder of sin, did it not? You can read Romans chapter 7, uh, specifically verses 7 through 12, to see that Paul is explaining one of the roles and functions of the Torah here. Now, this isn't the only function of the Torah, but when we are in unbelief of Yeshua, then it is a primary function. However, after coming into a relationship with Hashem, through His Son Yeshua, of course, the person, you and I, we underwent a change in relationship to the Torah. We no longer um, approach the Torah the same way. The Torah no longer held that function of primarily reminding us of sin. In fact, the Abrahamic or the Avrahamic covenant became for him or for us a promise of inheritance. The words that God spoke to Abraham became the paradigm of salvation and it became the guarantor of the promises that God has given to us through Yeshua. The paradigm of salvation or justification as the church would say is the Abrahamic covenant. Right? Now it is a promise of the inheritance that we receive in God through Messiah Yeshua. You of course ask yourself the obvious question. What is it an inheritance of? 
well, of eternal life through trust and faithfulness. As we continue to renew our faith in Yeshua, I don't mean becoming saved all over again. What I mean is we have an ongoing relationship with Yeshua that is to say our faith is dynamic. It continues to strengthen as we walk with Jesus. That's what I mean by trusting faithfulness. It's not static, it's ongoing. This inheritance is ours as we walk into Yeshua, as we put on Messiah, as we clothe ourselves in Christ, then we can be sure that the promises that God gives to us are yes and amen, and that God will continue to to look out for our good, and that the blessings will follow us. All right? So eternal life through Yeshua is gained through placing our faith in God, of course, this is of course this this is a tantamount to faith in Yeshua, um, but blessings are sure to follow that. Now, what ends up happening is is that the words of the Torah and the faith that we have in Yeshua become our proof of ownership, so to say. We belong to Messiah, and Messiah belongs to us. That's why Paul can say in Romans again that through the Spirit we cry, "Abba, Father." That is to say, we cry, "Daddy." We say to God, "Daddy." Why? which is a term of endearment, by the way, Daddy, Abba. Why do we cry Daddy? Because of what the Messiah has done to us, and for us, and through us, and uh, what he's continuing to do for us. So, uh, the Torah now is our proof of ownership. How do we know we're saved? Because the Bible says so. That's what I mean by proof of ownership. When we, when we are questioned as to what we believe, we should unashamedly point towards the words of, of God, the Bible itself is our proof of ownership. We have faith in Yeshua, and we are our faith is secure. It's anchored in the words of God. Now, these words of God, this Torah, this very same Bible, it still reminds us of our sin. Yes, we're not perfect. We will not be perfect until Yeshua comes back and changes us. So the Torah can still remind us of how short we fall when we try to measure up to God's um, obedience rod. We all still fail God. That's okay. God understands that. God anticipates that. That's why he extends forgiveness to us, right? However, because we are now um, righteous in God, because we now constitute the righteousness of God, you know, we are his righteousness through Yeshua. I, I used this term before, but I suppose I didn't tell you where I got the verse. Second Corinthians five seventeen through twenty one, as well as Ephesians two, one through ten. We are the righteousness of God in Messiah. As he looks down on us, he likes to as as um Wayne Watson used to say in his song, look at us through rose colored glasses. It's right. He no longer sees us as sinners. Our status has changed, and in his courtroom God no longer deems us as guilty and as sinners. We have been acquitted and we are now deemed as righteous. So we are now free to pursue following God without the threat of death for disobedience. You see, before we found God, before God found us, I might really say, before Messiah became our inheritance, when we disobeyed, the choices would lead us towards a path that would ultimately result in death. That was the choice that Moshe, Moshe, Moshe presented before us in last week's parasha. Life and death, and outside of Messiah, death is the only option. But now in Messiah, we no longer have to worry about the threat of death. Or as the New Testament puts it, death has lost its sting. 
We no longer have to fear death. To be sure, the Torah did spell certain death for some disobedient acts committed by the supposed covenant follower in the time period of the Tanakh. You can, for, for instance, remind yourselves about how that in Exodus 31, uh, verses 12 through 18, when it comes to Sabbath violation, God says he'll kill you. If you're a repeat offender, he'll kill you. Now, even the New Testament, even the New Covenant Scriptures teach that the wages of sin is death. So we see consistency from one part of this book to the next part of the book. There's no disconnect. But what I'm trying to explain is that in Yeshua, in his atoning death, he has redeemed us from what we call the curse of the law. The curse of the law, as in Galatians 3.13, rendered from the KJV. The curse of the law is condemnation and death. And Christ redeemed us from that. You can reference Romans 8 verse 1. We are no longer under condemnation because we have been clothed and found to be in Messiah. We have now put on his righteousness and death can no longer harm us. We're of course talking about spiritual death. We're all possibly going to die physically someday. That is to say if we do not live to see Yeshua come back bodily. But physical death is is nothing Spiritual death is one that we needed to fear. But thanks be to God, in Messiah we no longer have to fear spiritual death. Death and condemnation, what I'm trying to say, are no longer our wages. And you can reference Romans 6, verse 23, as well as Romans 8, 1, as I mentioned earlier. So you see, we are the righteousness of God and Messiah. Let me draw this part of my commentary to a conclusion. It's going to be a very long conclusion, okay? This next section of my commentary is actually entitled Conclusions, but you're going to find out that it's a seven-page conclusion because there's about ten pages to my commentary and we're only on page three. For those of you listening to my commentaries and not quite grasping what I'm trying to say about Yeshua, I need you to understand how this all applies. Okay? Do you understand how the Bible becomes our guarantor of our salvation, how Yeshua makes promises to the Word of God, and that we can stand on the Word of God when the devil comes and, and, and points, po- uh, points his bony finger in your face and tells you that you don't deserve to be a child of God because you're such a, a, a disobedient sinner. You need to turn to, in your defense, to the words of the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, I might add. Stop cutting short yourself, your, your, your resources as a Christian. Pull out your Tanakh and show the devil how that you are a child of God and how that it extends all the way back to the time period of the Tanakh when Moshe said, choose life or choose death. And you chose life because the it that Moshe wrote about is the Messiah that Paul wrote about. And we did that midrash in Romans, or we, in the last week's parashah. So if you missed it, go back and download Parashat Nitzavim and you'll understand what I'm talking about there. <clears throat> we need to understand that the Torah is Hashem's measuring rod for disobedience. We cannot and should not dismiss such a measuring device. Do you want to find yourself wallowing in your own sin with no way to, to chart it, to, to, um, to uh, uh, measure it, and to ultimately uh, find a way out of it? Sure, the grace of God is abundant. But the Torah is God's objective standard. To be sure... Measuring disobedience is what God said in verse 26 of her present parasha. How else would God be able to say that Israel was was 
going off into gross idolatry if there was no measuring device for disobedience. If there was no definition of sin or righteousness, then there would be no way for God's word to condemn those who do sin and for God to exonerate those who do put their trust in him. You see, even the New Testament, the Brit Chadashah, the Apostolic Scriptures, the New Covenant um, writings echo the same teaching consistently throughout the above-mentioned book in Romans. This happens, the Torah teaches us, in both the Tanakh and in the Brit Chadashah. It happens in order, quote, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world will be shown to deserve God's adverse judgment. For in his sight... No one alive will be considered righteous, end quote. Now the book of Romans there is actually quoting from Psalm uh, 143, verse 2. Um, and the, the quote is picked up again in Romans 3.19. God's word is the, measuring, um, um, is the measuring rod for disobedience for everyone. That's what the book of Romans is trying to teach us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one who's exempt from this. That's how we understand that the Torah's measuring rod for obedience and disobedience can be applied to every man. God says to everyone, you are all failures. You are all unrighteous. Without the redemption offered through my son, you will all die in your sin. Every one of us. No one is righteous. No, not one. You see, this specifically, of course, applied to those within the framework of the Torah, which the Jewish nation truly was. When God gave his words to Israel, they became all the more culpable, all the more responsible for what God's um, standards were to be as they were going to be shown to the rest of the world. Israel was to get it first, and Israel was to demonstrate and showcase these standards to the rest of the world. The budding young nation that we read about in our current uh, parasha had already, before they even got into the land, they had already begun to live within that framework, which was initiated at Mount Sinai. Remember when back in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20, when they said, All that you have said we will do, speaking of God and of his words? They married themselves to God, people. And in that marriage, they pledged themselves to walk into his ways. And in that walk, they pledged themselves to demonstrate disobedience to the rest of the surrounding nations. Read Deuteronomy chapter 4. Israel's call was to showcase the, the righteousness of God to the surrounding people groups. Hashem was training them to become dependent upon his grace alone to get them out of hot water. God didn't demand perfection. God knew that they would get in trouble. We, we read that prophecy in last week's Torah portion. Read Deuteronomy chapter 29 and you'll see it. Moshe predicts that the people would, would fall into gross disobedience, idolatry, and find themselves exiled outside the land. But even then, God would extend his grace. He would, he would extend his mercy to them even though they didn't deserve it. So God needed to teach them that it was his grace alone that would get them out of hot water. There's nothing we can do salvifically to bring ourselves to know Messiah and to trust in him. All we can do is accept his free gift. God reaches out to us. That's why the Bible says that no one seeks after God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We go into our own ways. We don't seek after God. Left to ourselves, we don't seek God. And if it were, if it were up to us, we would all perish. No one would be saved. But thanks be to God that he reaches out to us. 
And this is why God establishes the elaborate system of sacrifices. We must be taught, like Israel did, to operate according to trust. The sacrifices all pointed towards Yeshua. They all served to teach Israel that to approach God, we must operate on His terms. It was an exclusive approach. It was an exclusive agreement between Israel and God. If you wish to approach me, God said, build me a tabernacle and offer the animal sacrifices as you approach me to cover your sins, to wipe clean my sanctuary as your sins stain it every time you approach We must learn to do things God's way. It is an exclusive statement when Yeshua says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man goes to the Father except through me. No man comes to the Father, he says. Yeshua is teaching the exact same thing that the sacrifices in the Tanakh pointed towards. And what is that? Exclusivity. Things were to be done according to the plan of the Holy One of Israel. It would take His loving provision to restore the fellowship that was lost way back in the garden, as a result of our first parent's sin. You know, looking back through our Old Testament here, a Jewish person living in the time period of the talk, they could only approach a holy God according to the instructions of the Torah. That's the only way they could. You try walking into the Holy of Holies without God inviting you, you're going to become the next sacrifice, I promise you. God could only be approached through the sacrifices. And as a result, because of the broken relationship, only God could repair the, repair the breach that exists between God and man. Only God can do it. Um, there's a Christian group out there by the name of... Um, oh, what's their name? Um, uh, gosh, I just forgot the name. There are a, a couple of very talented uh, uh, young ladies... Um, I'll remember it in a moment, but they have a, a song that says that there's a bridge to cross the great divide. In the chorus, they sing this, there's a bridge to cross the great divide. And then they play with that chorus, they play with the words, and they say there's a cross to bridge the great divide. There's a bridge to cross the great divide. There's a cross to bridge the great divide. If I remember the name of the group, um, then I'll tell you who it is. It's it's uh, this group of, of uh, I think it's three or four gals. But at any rate, um, the point that, that is made in, the, in, that, in that song is that only God can bridge the, gra- uh, bridge the gap. And he did so with the cross. Okay? In Hashem's economy, both old and new, I might add, again, God doesn't change. There are only two kinds of people. Dead men and living men. Dead men and living men. That's why Moshe gives two choices, life and death. It's very dualistic. There's only one or the other. Okay? There are only two types of people in God's economy. Now, which kind you are, of course, depends on whether or not you have personally accepted Yeshua as your Lord and Savior. It's that simple. If you have accepted Yeshua, then you are alive and you chose life. But if you have not accepted Yeshua, it doesn't matter what religion you follow, what family clan you come from, or how many creeds you say, how many rosaries you pray, how many mantras you recite, how many beads you count, how many times you climb that mountain, it does not matter. You're a dead man. Only through Yeshua will you find life. Yeshua is our Lord and Savior. And how you relate to Him makes all the difference. How does a dead man enter into the land of the living? Ask Paul. He'll, he'll tell you. Okay, Let's turn to Paul and find out. Rav Shaul alluded to this change <clears throat> of how a dead man can enter into life. 
um, in his letter to the Galatians when he stated, quote, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. Okay? For through the law I died to the law. Now what does Paul mean here? Well, what I want to do for you real quick here is I want to pull in some audio um, uh, an audio portion, an audio excerpt from a class that I taught at the Harvest entitled Exegeting Galatians, and we covered this particular verse. In fact, we covered, for through the law I die the law, and we also covered the next verse, which is verse, um, or, or verse 21, which is on page 4 of our written notes for this week's commentary. So I'm going to cover... Um, the information in the notes, starting where it says, For through the law I died to the law, and go all the way through to the top of page 5 with the uh, last sentence that says, Anointed one of God, uh, at the footnote. So um, I'm going to cover all that information using an audio excerpt from my Galatians class, okay? So let's pick up the uh, the notes as I pre-recorded them, or pick up the material as I pre-recorded it to an otherwise unpublished uh, version or unpublished class, unavailable, I should say, to anyone else on the Internet. Let's pick up about 12 minutes or so of that class as I pre-recorded it to the um, commentary to the exegeting Galatians, okay? Look at the top, verse 19. Paul's going to now start uh, talking about this, the the function of the law, because at this point in time, you, you have to kind of be fair. If it's all about identity, and it's all about faith, and it's all about Jesus, you know, what, what do we need the law for? At one point in time, Paul's just going to come out and ask, what purpose does the law serve? Because possibly when he's writing, he's thinking, you know what, I've pushed my readership into a corner where they just realize that the law plays really no function as far as our getting into God's presence. And they might now come to the uh, um, um, wrong conclusion that maybe the law is just not needed at all. In fact, that's the conclusion the church came to. Is that, gosh, the, you know, we, we pushed ourselves into this corner of faith so far that, you know what, the law is really is just... We don't need it. We've outgrown it. It's out, whatever. So Paul, he starts to introduce this concept of the true Torah. So he says in verse 14, or verse 19, now this is my commentary if you're listening, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. Now, this verse taken out of context is a favorite for those who are anti-Torah. Paul is telling right here, I died to the law. I'm like, yeah, but he says through the law I died to the law. Explain that one. Most commentators are going to focus on the second clause. I died to the law so that I might live for God. But then I ask them, well, explain the first part. For through the law, I died to the law. They don't usually give a, an adequate explanation. And um, I don't know if we're ever going to read J. Vernon McGee's version. We'll see. We'll get to it. I don't know. I, I, uh, we'll see. All right, here's my comments. At first blush, this verse seems to spell the end of any Torah relevance for the apostle. It really does. But a careful reading will reveal its true meaning. The verse starts out with the Greek word for, which is gar. Actually, I think it's um, the the G has a different sound. I think it's I don't think it's G all the time. It might be something else. But I'm learning Greek. So, but for the now for now, I think it's gar, which is a conjunction indicating that it is linked to a previous argument, because he says for. So to get the context, the running context, we, I really should have done a comment on verse 17, which I didn't. So, apologize. I may go back some version and clean that up and add verse 17 so that verse 19 makes a little more sense. But for the moment, it seemed to make sense to me. Um, in this case, Paul's 4 represents an answer to the if clause introduced in verse 17. And then I just give it to you right here. 
if while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, blah, 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 blah. And then he goes on. Which is a difficult verse as well. I suppose I think, I, I think I'm going to need to go revisit it. The key to understanding verse 19 is in answering exactly how we as individuals in verse 17 come to be made aware that we ourselves are sinners. Okay? Prior to his salvation experience, Shaul was blinded to his true condition, which is what? Dead in trespasses and sin. In fact, let me pause. The proof of it is in another book, Paul describes himself as regarding law, blameless. Because when you are measuring yourself by your own standard, you can reach perfection. It's only when the Spirit of God looks into your life and shows you what you really look like. In fact, some people are fond of saying that the closer you press into the Spirit and, and to God, the more you start realizing how inadequate you are. The more the light, more more of God's light that shines in on your life, the more and more you start realizing, oh, I'm so inadequate. So it's it's the people who aren't really close to God that say, you know what, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. Well, Paul had reached the point where outside of the Spirit of God, he'd reached nirvana. He'd reached perfection. He said he calls it blameless regarding the Torah of God. Blameless. He thought he was all right. Okay, prior to his salvation experience, Paul was blinded to his true condition, dead in trespasses and sin. However, now that the Spirit has taken up residence within him, via the sacrificial death of Yeshua, he can look back on how the Torah played a part in bringing him to this newfound revelation about himself. The Torah, working in concert with the Spirit of God, which, by the way, is the way it should work. Too much Torah, not enough Spirit, dead person. Too much Spirit, not enough Torah, Crazy person. <laughs> we need a balance of both. Really? <laughs> I mean, I don't know how else to describe it, but you know what I mean. Yeah, too much spirit and not enough Torah. You know, you can sit in your basement and come up with all kinds of revelations. The Spirit of God told me to leave my wife and go after my secretary. I'm like, you've got too much spirit, buddy. You need to back off the helium and get come back down to earth. Um, and then too much Torah without any spirit is what you'll find in most Orthodox circles. So we don't want a, we don't want to be imbalanced in either one. We want a healthy dose of spirit and Torah. But at either rate, the Torah working in concert with the Spirit of God revealed sin for what it was. And what is sin? Violation of God's righteous standard. Thus, through the Torah, and I should have put that in quotes, because that's what Paul says, for through the law I died to the law. Through the Torah, that is through its proper function of revealing and condemning sin, the individual is brought to the goal of the Torah, namely the revelation of the Messiah himself. Remember that example that Paul gives in... Well, I can't say remember because we technically haven't gotten to it in our study in Galatians, but if you've, if you've read Galatians before, you know how Paul describes the Torah as a pedagogos, pedagogos, I'm sorry, the boy teacher, the boy tutor that leads them to Messiah. That's, that's what he's talking about, for through the law. It's, it's, it's almost like he's saying the, 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 the pedagogos did its job. Once faced with the choice to remain in sin or be set free by the power of the blood, and I do believe we get the choice. God opens our eyes, we get the choice. Paul confesses that he died to his old self and was consequently made alive in the newness that is accredited to those who choose life. That's what he means, for through the law I died. Now we have to explain the part to the Torah. So we're up to the point now, for through the law I died. We got that part down. But Paul says that he died to Torah. Now this is the part that the Christian commentators pick up on and make the application that Paul died to what? Torah relevance. Torah observance. In other words, Ryan, why are you wearing tzitzit? Why are you keeping kosher? Why are you keeping the Sabbath? Why aren't you dead to the law? Paul's dead to the law. Why aren't you dead to the law? That's the application. 
Well, it's a misapplication. It's a misunderstanding. What does Paul mean by such a statement that he died to the Torah? Are we to assume that in Yeshua, Paul is now somehow dead to obedience to the Torah? May it never be. Where would Paul get that if that were the case? That's nowhere in Torah. Nowhere in the Torah does the boy teacher lead you to the conclusion that once you reach the Messiah, that you're dead to the boy tutor of sorts. Um, Simply put, he now realizes that his new life in the Spirit is a life to be lived without the fear of being condemned as a sinner by the very Torah he previously thought he was upholding. So he's dead to the condemnation of the Torah, if I could just decrypt myself. The Torah has a properly installed, built-in function of sentencing sinners to become the object of Hashem's punishment and ultimate rejection, a rejection that will result in the death if the person never, and it's supposed to say chooses, I just realized there's a typo there, but it says choose. The person never chooses the Messiah of life. So the Torah condemns sinners, and the word sinners is the ultimate status of a person who is judged by God, by God's righteous standard. On the, in the courtroom of God's um, judgment, the gavel comes down on the person who has no um, way to answer for his crimes of sin. Of course, we all in this room who profess the name of Yeshua, the, the gavel comes down as acquitted because all of our sins have been placed on our, on our, our DA, which is Yeshua. But for those who step into God's courtroom on their own righteousness, on their merit of either being Jewish or proselyte or whatever you want to call it, then the gavel comes down as, nope, sorry, you're a sinner. Because there is no other way. We know that. So that's what Paul's talking about. That's a proper function of the Torah, to condemn sinners. It's not a misuse of Torah. That's proper use of Torah. The Torah condemns sinners. And that's why we know that, in one sense, the word sinner is a technical term. It doesn't mean someone who sins. It means someone whose life is characterized by sin to the point to betray that they are not regenerate. That's what we mean when we say sinner. Because obviously we still sin, but we are not characterized by the label sinner. You could say it's a legal term. It's like the criminal enters the court bound in handcuffs. When he enters the court, he's a criminal. But if at the end of the courtroom scene, the judge declares him innocent, then he doesn't leave a criminal. His status has changed. He's now a citizen. He can leave as a citizen. He doesn't go out in handcuffs. So um, at least that's the scene I'm trying to paint. I don't know if all the logistics of that are correct, but you guys get the idea. We enter this courtroom as sinners, but we don't leave as sinners. We leave as saints. So you know the old adage, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, I'm not even a sinner. That doesn't mean I don't sin, but I'm not a sinner. Not in the legal sense. I am a saint now. I'm redeemed. I'm the redeemed of God. Or as FFOZ puts it, I'm the righteousness of God in Messiah. So the, we have a new status. We have a whole new outlook on life, not just because of what Yeshua has done, but because of the continual uh, activity of the Spirit in our lives. So Paul is teaching the Galatians, and specifically when I say the Galatians, I have the Gentile Galatians in view. He's teaching the Galatians that his choice of Yeshua is to be understood as a death of self and the former life that Torah condemned in favor of a new life of serving God through the Spirit. A choice brought on by the revelation of Messiah found within the very pages of the Torah itself. Such freedom in Messiah does not liberate one from Torah. This is the clincher for the church, where they can't get this. Such freedom in Messiah does not liberate one from Torah. Rather, such freedom liberates one to be able to walk into Torah as properly assisted and seen from God's perspective. So whenever someone says, I'm free, you always always have to ask, free to do what? 
Well, I'm free from sin. That's not what I asked. What are you free to do? What are you free to sin now? No. In Messiah, if you're free, then you are free to live unto God. That's what biblical freedom is. So often people say, no, 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 we're no longer under the Torah, we're free. Free from sin, right? Yeah, free from sin. But free to do what? They usually don't give you an answer. They just stop. We're no longer in the Torah. We're free. Okay, you're free from sin? Yes, I'm free. They'll, they'll agree. And I agree too. I am free from sin. So you, you Torah students now should be asking them the next question. Free to do what? And then they'll go, they'll stop. Because the picture painted by the Torah is that as a slave, I cannot serve God. Remember, the paradigm is given all the way in the book of Exodus. You have the children of Israel in Egypt and the, slave, the taskmaster is Pharaoh. And Moses comes in and says, let my people go. But that's not at all that he said. What else did he say? What's the rest of the sentence? That they may worship me. Yeah, the idea is that because they're enslaved, they can't worship me. Let them free so that they can worship me. So the paradigm of, of, us, of our personal lives is when the Spirit frees us, we're free to worship God. We're not free to violate Torah. That, 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 see, if we, if, we would, if we would think through this using the Torah as our own guideline, then we'd understand that to say, I'm free from the Torah, just doesn't make any sense. Verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Bringing his argument of the previous verses and indeed the chapters we have it to a close, Paul again reinforces the truth that the righteousness of God is attained for an individual at Christ's expense and not through the rubrics of a man-made conversion ceremony read here as through the law. The law in question is the oral tradition that only Israel can inherit blessings in the world to come a belief formerly held to by the apostle himself to be sure if being declared righteous understood to be primarily forensic but including behavioral as well could be achieved via the flesh that is being born jewish or converting to judaism then truly what need would there be for a messiah to come and provide it later for anyone Paul would have the reader to understand that such righteousness is altogether outside of human achievement and therefore must be procured by surrendering to the power of the anointed one of god well, that concludes the um, excerpt from my exegeting Galatians study there. If you'd like to hear the entire study, continue to pray that I will work out all the details on getting that audio class published to this website as well. There's a little bit of red tape holding me up on that. Okay, um, But as I um, wanted to conclude to this section, Part A, before we move on uh, to Parashat Vayelech, um, the Torah... As has been explained by Paul, um, showing us sin before we come to Messiah, it's always going to have a conscious sin-raising role as long as we walk in imperfection. Don't get me wrong. We will always be reminded of sin, okay? Until Yeshua comes and changes us so that we are sin-free, the Torah is going to remind us of sin. But we no longer need to die the death that Paul described in those Galatians verses. We're talking about the um, words of God and how that we relate to them both before we come to Yeshua as well as afterwards. It is a um, common teaching within Christian circles that after we come to faith in Christ that the Torah is no longer use, useful for us as a, uh, as a Bible community. Now what I don't mean that we simply throw away all of God's words or God's ways. To state it plainly, what I mean is that 
Christian theology prevalent today seems to teach that once we come to faith in Jesus, there's no longer a need to walk into the ceremonial and the civil portions of the law, a.k.a. we no longer need to worry about what is clean and unclean regarding animals and what we can eat, a.k.a. we no longer need to walk into Sabbath, seventh-day Shabbat-keeping. Rather, we are now free and encouraged to embrace Sunday-keeping in honor of the resurrection of Yeshua. Also, we have we seem to jettison any connection to the biblical holidays listed in Leviticus 23, as well as wearing tzitzit and the other things that would ostensibly make us look, as it were, outwardly Jewish. You guys following with following me so far? Does that sound pretty safe when it comes to um, standard Christian theology today and their reaction to Torah obedience? I continue to to embrace the Torah as a person known as a Messianic Jew. I call myself a Messianic Jew, someone who believes in Yeshua but also embraces the Torah. And this causes friction with people that I meet. Messianics are often misunderstood. Within Jewish circles, we're misunderstood because of our faith in Jesus, and that's understandable. But within church circles, we're misunderstood because of our affiliation with the law. So we've been going in that direction in this commentary. Um, For some of you, this is very, very informative. For others of you, maybe this is disturbing. (laughs) Well, we are at the top of page 5, and what I've been doing is um, I've been mid-rashing on the functions of the law. We pulled an audio excerpt from a Galatians commentary that I taught to the harvest, and that is, um, as of yet, unpublished anywhere else on the Internet. So you guys just got like a little 12-minute taste of... of, um, of a class, and I'm trying to get published to the website, but just have run into some red tape o- over that. Um, what I'd like to do, though, is pick up my commentary here and still talk on this notion of the function of the law, as Paul outlined it in the book of Galatians, a most informative book, to be sure, if it's one of my favorites. Let's pick up the study at the top of page 5 with the um, bold um, heading there where it says Galatians 3.19. What I want to re- do for you uh, quoting This, of course, comes straight from my Galatians commentary, but what I want to do is I want to read one particular verse and um, from one, two, three, four, five, six different versions. Roman, uh, Galatians 3.19, I want to read for you from six different versions. And then I'm going to comment on it, okay? Galatians 3.19, let's start with the King James Version, KJV. Quote, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. End quote. Next um, passage or next version is the authorized standard version. Quote, what then is the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise hath been made and it was ordained through angels by the hand of a mediator. End quote. Next version is Young's literal translation. Quote, why then the law? On account of the transgressions it was added, till the seed might come to which the promise hath been made, having been set in order through messengers in the hand of a mediator. End quote. Next version is, uh, I believe it's pronounced Weymouth, uh, Weymouth, Weymouth New Testament. Quote, Why then was the law given? It was imposed later on for the sake of defining sin, until the seed should come to whom God had made the promise, and its details were laid down by a mediator with the help of angels. End quote. Next version is the English Standard Version. Quote, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. End quote. 
And then the last version is David Stern's Complete Jewish Bible. Quote, So then, why the legal part of the Torah? It was added in order to create transgressions until the coming of the seed about whom the promise had been made. Moreover, it was handed down through angels and a mediator. End quote. What I want to talk about concerning these verses are different perspectives or um, different, um, how should I say, interpretations really of this passage. And uh, I want to look at the prevailing Christian view of this verse as well as the prevailing Messianic Jewish perspective of this verse. So let's um, call this next section in my commentary Prevailing Christian and Messianic Jewish Perspective. I want to quote now for you from um, from a, a, a commentary to this passage taken from the BibleGateway.com website. Their resources, commentaries, index, um, commentary to these verses. Okay, You'll see the footnote at the bottom of page 7. I'm going to read their commentary at length because I want to get the full scope of the common Christian perspective or the prevailing Christian perspective behind the verses that I just read. The verse, Galatians 3.19. Okay, you ready? Here is the quote lifted word, from word, word for word from uh, BibleGateway.com. Quote, and it's broken up into, um, I'm sorry, into basically two sections. Section one starts out with two paragraphs. Quote, according to Paul, the law has a negative purpose. It was added because of transgressions, as in verse 19. Paul has already demonstrated what the law does not do. It does not make anyone righteous before God, as in verse 11. It is not based on faith, as in verse 12. It is not the basis of inheritance, as in verse 18. So if the law is divorced from righteousness, faith and inheritance of the blessing, to what is law related? Paul says that the law is related to transgressions. A transgression, a transgression is the violation of a standard. The law provides the objective standard by which the violations are measured. In order for sinners to know how sinful they really are, how far they deviate from God's standards, God gave the law. Before the law was given, there was sin. You can see Romans 5.13. But after the law was given, sin could be clearly specified and measured. See Romans 3.20 as well as Romans 4.15 and Romans 7.7. 7. Each act or attitude could then be labeled as a transgression of this or that commandment of the law. Imagine a state in which there are many traffic accidents but no traffic laws. Although people are driving in dangerous, harmful ways, it is difficult to designate which acts are harmful until the legislature issues a book of traffic laws. Then it is possible for the police to cite drivers for transgressions of the traffic laws. The laws define harmful ways of driving as violations of standards set by the legislature. The function of traffic laws is to allow bad drivers to be identified and prosecuted. Now that's section one. Let's keep reading section two, which has uh, two paragraphs. Quote, The temporal framework for the law is clearly established by the words added until the seed to whom the promise referred had come, as in verse 19. Paul has already emphasized that the Mosaic Law was given 430 years after the Abrahamic promise of verse 17. The word added implies that the law was not a central theme in God's redemptive plan. It was supplementary and secondary to the enduring covenant made with Abraham. As the word added marks the beginning point for the Mosaic Law, the word until marks its end point. 
The Mosaic Law came into effect at a certain point in history and was in effect only until the promised seed, Christ, appeared. There is a contrast here between the permanent validity of the promise and the temporary nature of the law. On the one hand, the promise was made long before the law and will be in effect long after the period of the law. On the other hand, the law was in effect for a relatively short period of time, limited in both directions by the words added and until. As we shall see in our study of next of the next few sections of the letter, see, uh, and they're referencing, this is from Galatians, see 3.23-25 through 25, as well as 4-1-4, through 1 through 4, Paul's presentation of the temporal framework for the law is a major theme of his argument for the superiority of the promise fulfilled in Christ over the law. This theme differs radically from the common Jewish perspective of his day, which emphasized the eternal, immutable nature of the law. But Paul's Christocentric perspective led him to see that Christ, the promised seed, not the law, was the eternal one. End quote. I lifted that information word for word from um, www.biblegateway.com slash resources slash commentaries slash index and then you have to look for the uh, um, commentary to Galatians. Uh, in fact, if you have my written notes or you have the electronic version of this commentary, um, like say if you're looking at it on the website, if you click on the footnote at the bottom of page 7, footnote number 2, it will take you directly to that commentary where I lifted the quote. Now let's move on to my own commentary, uh, my own wording, I should say. Concerning this verse, which is Galatians 3.19, David Sturm seems in some ways to take the popular Christian view as noted above, just a step further, if you notice, if you look at the wording. While not casting the Torah in a negative light, because David Stern's a Jewish man who still has positive um, regards for the Torah, he nonetheless seems not to fully capture the intended meaning of Paul's point there in verse 19. And this is just my opinion. Now, again, you all know that at the beginning of every one of my commentaries, I cite that all quotations are taken from David Stern's version unless otherwise noted. So, I really like David Stern's Bible. However, it has its limits. And in this case, I believe it's, this is one of the times where I would have to take umbrage with his translation. So, because of his widespread acceptance among many Messianic believers, I think his view is worth critiquing. Moreover, his popularity in the Messianic community has far-reaching influence in the way the movement forms their views of the Torah. Which, for the most part, is positive, right? So, let's pull... Um, a quote from David Stern, this time out of his Jewish New Testament commentary, and um, see what he has to say about this verse, and then I'm going to critique it myself. All right? Quote, this is, this is his commentary. So then, why the legal part of the Torah? See verse 17 in notes. This is David Stern commenting on Galatians 3.19 in his own commentary. Why was it needed at all if the promise of verse 18 is independent of it? It was added to the promise and to the environment of Jewish history in particularly, in particularly and human history in general in order to create transgressions, literally because of transgressions. David Stern goes on to say the latter could mean, quote, in order to contain and limit transgressions, in order to keep the Jewish people from becoming so intolerably, intolerable, <laughs> let's try that again, intolerable, <laughs> I can't say that word, it's a tongue twister, intolerably <laughs> sinful, so that they would become irredeemable. 
But instead of this, David Stern says, he, he thinks, or in his own words, I think it means, as Shaul explains in Romans 7, that a key purpose of the commandments was to make Jewish people ever aware of their sin. Not that Jews were more sinful than Gentiles, but that like Gentiles, Jews too fall short of earning God's praise, a reference to Romans 3.23. The Torah creates, as it were, transgressions by containing commandments which people break, indeed which rebellious human nature perversely wants to break. And you can reference Romans 7, verses 7-12 through 12 in the following notes. But at least in some cases, David Stern goes on to say, the guilt they feel causes them to despair of ever earning God's praise by their own works, so that they come to God in all humility to repent, seek his forgiveness, and trust him him. And then he asks you to see Romans 3, 19-20, and all the notes corresponding. Stern continues, Until the coming of the seed, Yeshua, in verse 16, about whom the promise had been made, um... His comment, from the time of Moshe until the coming of Yeshua, the Torah had a conscious-raising role towards sin. The Torah still exists, is still in this force. Uh, you can see Galatians 6.2. And for those who have not yet come to trust in Yeshua, it still has this function. But for those who do trust in Yeshua and are faithful to him, the Torah need no longer serve in this capacity. Shaul explains why in verses 21-25. through 25. Stern goes on to um, conclude. It, the Torah, was handed down to Moshe on Mount Sinai through angels, a point made three times in the New Testament, you can see Acts 7.53, and through a human mediator, Moshe, an often heard Jewish objection to the um, New Testament's teaching is that Jews don't need Yeshua because they don't need a mediator between themselves and God. This verse refutes the claim with its reminder that Moshe himself served as such a mediator, as for that matter did the Kohanim and the prophets. And Stern um, wants you to look up verse. Uh, he wants you to look up Hebrews eight six, Hebrews ten nineteen through twenty one, First Timothy two five, Exodus twenty verse nineteen, Deuteronomy five two and five, and this citation from a pseudepigraphic work dating from the first or second century B.C.E., which uh, reads, quote, "Draw near to God and to the angel that intercedes for you, for he is a mediator between God." And man, end quote. And that lift out of David Stern's commentary uh, belongs to the Testament of Dan, chapter 6, verse 2. Now, if you look at the bottom of page 8, I pulled this quote out of David Stern's Jewish New Testament commentary um, from David H. Stern, the Jewish New Testament commentary, to Galatians, Jewish New Testament publications, 1992, page 550. Let's go back up to the top of the page to my own commentary. These are my own words now. I believe that as important a contribution as Stern has made to the Messianic movement, again, remember, I currently endorse his Bible translation in every one of my commentaries. With regards to his commentary on this particular verse, however, I labeled this a neutral view as opposed to the blatant negative one that Christianity holds towards the Torah that was given to Israel. All right? Christianity, let me just uh, speak freely, Christianity seems to take what I term a negative view of Torah. The proof is in her her ever-increasing apprehension to embrace the, um, the uh, 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 what do we say, the ceremonial and the civil aspects of the Torah, viz. Sabbath, kosher, tzitzit, festivals, etc. 
Okay, so because of her reluctancy to embrace these aspects of the Torah and the Jewishness that it conveys to its people, maybe that's why they're afraid. Then I like to call their view negative. Okay, it's not it's not in tor- entirely Torah positive, but David Stern, although he is Torah positive overall, his view of Galatians here is to answering Paul's question as to why was the law given. Remember, that's how the the Pasuk started out. Um, it's it started out quote. Uh, wherefore then serveth the law, or why then is the law? Why the law? Why was the law given? And David Stern seems to answer in a kind of a neutral way. Not really denigrating the Torah, that is to say, you know, demeaning it, bringing it down, but not really bringing it up to the to the entirely positive level that, that Paul's trying to explain to his readers in his letter to Galatia there. I believe there's more to this passage than we just read in David Stern's commentary, and we're going to get to it in my own here in a moment. So, um, again, with regards to David Stern's commentary, it's a neutral view as, I, as, I, as I've turned it, as I've termed it, as opposed to the blatant negative one that Christianity holds. Um, Paul's argument at this point in the letter is crucial. We need to understand why Paul is even saying the Torah has been given. And when we say it's given, it's given to Israel, obviously, but it's also given to everyone who will encounter Israel's God. So, let's turn a little further in my own commentary to see if we can figure out a little bit more as to why answering the question, why the Torah was given. In a sort of combination of both Bible Gateway that I quoted earlier, which was a negative view. This is no slam on Bible Gateway. I think it's a great resource. It's just the prevailing Christian view, viz, negative. So, in kind of a combination of the Bible Gateway and Stern, we have commentator David Guzik, Christian commentator. He adds his contribution to the Galatian Dilemma. Let's pick up his um, notes also from David Guzik, Galatians 3, the Christian Law, uh, the Christian Law and Living by Faith by David Guzik, 2001. And if you look at the footnote at the bottom of page 8, footnote number 4 shows you where I got this quote at his own website. Let's read that quote. What purpose then does the law serve? Um, Guzik goes on to say. It was added because of transgressions. Part of the reason the law was given was to restrain the transgression of men through clearly revealing God's holy standard. God had to give us his standard so we would not destroy ourselves before the Messiah came. But the law is also added because of transgressions in another way. The law also excites man's innate rebellion through revealing a standard showing us more clearly our need for salvation in Jesus End quote. And he references Romans 7, just like David Stern did. Are you seeing then that um, both commentators, both Stern and Guzik, um, as well as Bible Gateway, are, are describing that the function of the law was to basically point out sin, which is kind of a passive role on the, on, on the part of Torah, to point out sin, or to stir up the sinful propensity within us, which is moving somewhat from a passive more towards an active, I would, I would add. Now it is true, these are my own words now, it is true that the Torah does possess a sort of conscience-raising role in regards to sin. As correctly stated by Guzik and as correctly noted by Stern in Romans chapter 7. Remember, both authors cited Romans chapter 7. And I don't really have a problem with that if that were not found in this portion of Paul's letter in Galatians. Because Paul does teach that in Romans chapter 7. That's what That would be, in other words... What Guzik and Stern mentioned just a moment ago about explaining why the law was given would make perfect sense if we were to apply it to Romans chapter 7. However, this is not Romans chapter 7. 
This is Galatians chapter 3. And so it seems to be that Paul is not really um, trying to explain this portion of the role's function of the I'm sorry, the role and function of the Torah to his listeners at this point in time. Given the immediate context of the verses complementing, uh, comp, uh, let me try that again. Given the immediate context, speaking of Romans now, okay. Given the immediate context of the following complementary verses, um, that is to say, look at my footnote to number five: the presence of angels and a mediator are not pejorative marks against the Torah. As many Christian teachers presume, right? Paul says it's given through a mediator and it was given in the presence of angels. Which many Christian commentators, if you go and look at their comments, will say that this, this shows that the Torah is inferior. All right? But rather in the first century Jewish worldview, these elements, the angels and the mediatorship, they are signs that God regarded the Torah as high and lofty enough to warrant accompaniment. <clears throat> Excuse me, lost my voice there. Um, lofty enough to warrant accompaniment, accompaniment by angels and to be safeguarded by the great Moshe. He's the one who delivered the people out of Egypt, right? So, that's the immediate context of the following verses in Galatians 3.19. So instead, it seems more likely when Paul's describing the function of the Torah and he's answering the questions when he says it was given because of sin. It seems more likely that this is not the Apostle's intended meaning here to, meant to merely... Um, point out that the Torah's function is to either highlight sin or to um, to stir up our propensity to sin even more outside of Messiah. Even though that's true that those are functions of the Torah, don't misunderstand me, it doesn't seem that that fits the context of Paul's argument. It's not the thrust of where he's going with his wording in Galatians. Instead, Tim Haig seems to uncover Shaul's true positive intentions with his well-written comment to his Galatians study, which I'm going to quote at length here in my own commentary. All right, you ready? This now is Tim Haig. Quote, The language of our present verse would indicate, and when it says present verse, Tim Haig is referring to Galatians 3.19. All right? The language of our present verse would indicate that we should read it positively, not negatively. In other words, now Tim Haig is going to paraphrase what Paul wrote. Why the Torah? It was given, that is to say, it was added to the revelation already given in the Abrahamic covenant to reveal the divine method of dealing with transgressions, in essence, for the sake of transgressions, just like Paul said. Um, Haig goes on to say, Already prejudiced against the Torah, the typical Christian exegesis misses the fact that a great deal of the Torah centers upon the tabernacle and the temple, the priesthood, and the sacrifices. How were the covenant members, that is to say, the people living in the Tanakh, how were they to, how were they to deal with the inevitable presence of sin in their personal and corporate lives? Well, the Torah gives the answer. By repentance and acceptance of God's gracious gift of forgiveness through the payment of a just penalty exemplified in the sacrifice. You see, Haig goes on to say it was the Torah that revealed in clear detail the method which God had provided for transgression. And it was this method, the sacrificial system and priesthood, that pointed to Messiah, the ultimate sacrifice and means of eternal forgiveness. You see the difference? Now let me just add my own words. The difference we begin to see if we look at this answer to Paul's question when he says, why was the Torah given? It was added because of sin. 
until Yeshua comes. The reference to Yeshua is not a negative slam on the Torah, limiting, limiting its capacity and far from limiting its applicability. Rather, let me let Tim Hig go on to um, continue to comment. Thus, Paul adds, this is Hig again, quote, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made, end quote. In the Greek, Hig goes on to note, this clause that I just read follows second immediately after it was added because of transgressions. It, it follows right after that clause. The English Standard Version, or the ESV, has the order correct, which I think I quoted, didn't I? Let me go back and look real quick. Yes, the English Standard Version is the second from the last one. The clauses there are accurate there. Haig goes on to notice, the ESV has the order correct. Why then the law? And he's gonna, now Haig's going to quote the verse again. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the person, I'm sorry, to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediator. Intermediary, end quote. Haig goes on to notice, the Torah was given in order to reveal God's gracious manner of dealing with transgressions, in essence, through the death of an innocent substitute. Do you see the big difference? The way Haig is describing the um, furthering comments by Paul in this Galatians passage. Again, we already saw the prevailing Christian view as outlined by Bible Gateway. Oops, sorry about that. My microphone got in the way there. Um, as outlined by uh, uh, by Bible Gateway. And then uh, Stern and Guzik took it a few steps further, but they didn't really say anything about the remedy for sin, right? They just show that the Torah points out sin, um, uh, defines sin, and stirs our propensity to sin even further. But really, we should understand that the Torah was given so that we could have a remedy for sin, all right? Going back to Tim Haig here, the Torah was given in order to reveal God's gracious manner of dealing with transgressions, in essence, through the death of an innocent substitute. Okay. Now, of course, the animals themselves did not offer the, the fullest measure of that forgiveness. All right. We're talking, when it says innocent substitute, we're talking ultimately about the sacrifice of Yeshua. But the animals did play an important role. Paul, therefore, this is the Hague again, Paul, therefore, immediately makes this point, the point that we just read there about the uh, substitute. Paul, therefore, immediately makes this point by adding, until the seed would come. Hague notices that here, as often, the word until, which the Greek word is achri, corresponding to the Hebrew word ad, this word has the primary meaning of, quote, marker of continuous extent of time up to a point until. All right? That's what the word achri means in, in the Greek. The point is, Haig goes on to conclude, that the revelation of the Torah regarding how God provides redemption in the face of transgressions has its focal point in uh, Yeshua, the Messiah who would come later on. Now, that part is Christian hindsight, I should say. It's 2020. We all know that the sacrifice is pointed towards Yeshua. But put that fact into this passage is what Tim Higgs trying to challenge us here. Why was the Torah given? Because it provides the remedy for sin. Not just showing what sin is and then throwing its hands up saying, oh well, do something about it. The Torah shows us how to deal with sin. In fact, let me just read Higgs' final 
concluding quote, and then I'll draw my own commentary to close, and we'll just make this two parts, okay? Part A and Part B. Once Yeshua had come and offered himself as God's eternal sacrifice, the ultimate revelation to which the sacrifices pointed had been given. And this is Paul's consistent perspective. The Torah leads to Yeshua. And you can reference Romans 10.4 and the continuing text of Galatians 3. End quote. You see, the Torah will always serve to remind us that we fall short of the goal when we try to accomplish things our own way. Yes, it is true the Torah is going to show us where we fail. And it is true that outside of Yeshua, the Torah actually has the capacity to stir up our sinful propensity even more, to frustrate us more as we try to line up with God's ways. By reminding us of our shortcomings, the purposes of Hashem is accomplished, though. What do we do? We run headlong into Yeshua. We desperately fall into His means of provision for our sin. It is then that we accept Hashem on His terms, in His terms only. We have no choice but to accept His Messiah. That's what the Torah points out for us. It, it carefully guides us down the path chosen by God and intersecting with the Messiah or, or leading us to the Messiah. Um, we, we have no choice but to encounter the Messiah if we'll carefully follow the Torah. Okay? It's not legalism. It's not legalism. That's not, how, that's not how God describes it. When we say that the Torah leads to the Messiah, that's not legalism. It's not too harsh that God would point out our sins either. That, that the Torah would remind us over and over again how short we fall when we try to measure up to God's uh, standards. That's not too harsh thinking. It's not even narrow-mindedness when we say that there's only one way. Okay? What it is, is pure love. That's right. Because God loves us, He provides a way for us to find our way back to Him. He provides a way of forgiveness. He provides a way of of, um, redemption. A cruel God would be a God who put us into a room, sealed it up, closed the door, and then took away the door, and left us to our own sin until we destroyed ourselves. That would be a cruel God. A God who gave us a Torah that led us round and round in circles, showing us where sin was, stirring up sinful, sinful propensity within us, but never providing a remedy. That would be a cruel God. You see, that's not the God that Paul describes, and that's not the God that Moshe describes. So we need to understand the purposes of the Torah. They lead to the Messiah. They point to the Messiah. They being the the commandments, obviously. They point to the Messiah. This is pure love. You see, had it not been for Yeshua providing the only way back to the Father, then we would all be without hope. We would all be without hope. Think about it. And this is the concluding thoughts to my commentary, okay? A man only accepts the hand of his rescuer once he realizes that he's drowning and cannot save himself. Right? So the Torah provides for us the reminder of sin. Until Yeshua comes into our life, the Torah serves to point out the fact that we are our headlong headed towards death. And that we will ultimately come to ruin and destruction if we do not turn around and choose life. God is reaching out to us. Yeshua is the one who is reaching out his hand to rescue the drowning man. The Torah helps man 
to understand this. You see, until man realizes that he is in need of Yeshua, man won't reach out to accept him. Try this on your own, you believers listening to my commentary. Go up to a man on the street who you don't know from Adam, that you presume to be an unbeliever. Ask him if he believes in Jesus. If he says no, go ahead and proceed to tell him that he needs Jesus. He'll probably reject what you're telling him and walk away. Why does he reject the gospel message? Isn't it true that he needs Jesus? Oh yes, it is true. But the lesson we learn from Paul, and this time we learn this in, again in Romans, is that before we hear the good news, unsaved man needs to hear the bad news. And you know what the bad news is? The bad news is, is that all we, like sheep, have gone astray. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. And so we, with the Torah helps us to recognize our, our shortcoming first. And then it prepares us to receive the Savior. Unless the man realizes he is in need of Yeshua, he won't reach out to accept him. The Torah helps man to see his need for a Savior. Amen? Amen. And with that, the commentary is drawn to a close. So let's do the closing blessing, alright? Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You've given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>